HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And culinary history, of course, is all about eating or preparing food. Food. I mean, we have a a very awkward and controversial relationship with food, I think, often. I mean, we need food. We eat food to survive. Um, And we also eat food for pleasure. But then there's also this thing we do called fasting, fasting from food. Now, of course, why would we do that? There are a lot of reasons throughout history, many reasons. And fasting from food is a controversial and sometimes dangerous and yet perfectly normal practice. My guest today, author, blogger, Christine Baumgarthuber, discusses our fascination with restrictive eating in cultural history in her new book, Why Fast? The Pros and Cons of Restrictive Eating. If fasting offers few health benefits, why do people fast? Why have we always fasted? Does fasting speak to something deep and immutable within us? And what might this ancient ascetic ritual offer us today? Obviously, we know a lot of religious practices involve fasting. And we're going to hear about that from Christine. Christine holds a doctorate in English literature from Brown University. Her work has been featured by Descent, Lapham's Quarterly, Round, Lapham's Quarterly Roundtable, excuse me, Bon Appetit, and the British Broadcasting Corporation. Her book, Fermented Foods, The History and Science of a Microbiological Wonder, was published by Reaction Press in 2021. Why Fast? The Pros and Cons of Restrictive Eating, came out in September of just this year, 2023. Welcome, Christine. Thanks, Linda. It's a pleasure to be here. And to have you back again. It's been, we were just talking, it's been several years since we've we've had you on. Um, And I, I, you know, I read the book. Okay, so I know you have a a very uh, nice, cute, interesting story in the beginning. But 
I was wondering why when I saw your name and I saw the book, I said, hmm, fasting, that's an intriguing topic. How did you come to be interested in writing about fasting? Sure. Fasting has always been a part of my life in one form or another. When I was growing up in Austria, my grandparents were great advocates of fasting, especially my grandfather. And I talk about in my book how I recall these wonderful Sunday dinners where my grandmother would make schnitzel and goulash and, and just the most toothsome and delightful foods. And and he would say, you know, I don't want any. And he'd go off and he'd stand on his head um, as a way of meditating. And I remember thinking as a child, why would you not want all this wonderful food? And and I asked him and I said, Opa, why aren't you eating? And he said, well, actually, it's quite healthy sometimes not to eat. And I found that quite fascinating. Of course, as a child, I had no interest in fasting. But as I became a teenager, and then a young adult, I started to read some books on fasting, namely the works of Pavel Irola, who was a kind of a health guru in the 70s and 80s, a big proponent of fasting. And, and he was talking about all sorts of health benefits. And that kind of awakened my curiosity about the practice. Um, I took it up myself in earnest uh, in my early 30s. I mean, decided, that, that you took up fasting yourself. Yes, um, yes, fasting, yes, in my in my early 30s. And I, maybe some listeners recall the, the craze for drinking the strange concoction made of maple syrup, cayenne pepper, and lemon juice. And you would drink that instead of eating one day a week. And I tried that. And... I felt terrible. I would try and work an eight-hour day. I couldn't do it. I had headaches. And so I, I, I decided fasting wasn't for me. Um, and then just two, three years ago, decided to revisit it with intermittent fasting. And, and finally, I decided that worked for me, just skipping dinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of different um, methods and have come up about lately, which you know we will talk about, um, mm-hmm. and fasting. And here, you know, it's 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 interesting with so much concern for populations that are facing food insecurity or, or areas of the world that suffer from acute hunger. Mm-hmm. And then we keep coming up with these new ways to avoid food and not eat food. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, the reasons are, you know, economic and, and um, areas that we live in and, and much different and political. But in order to discuss this topic, as you mentioned in in your book as well, um, you really need to uh, differentiate fasting from starvation. And you give you know a nice mm-hmm. a nice example of that. You say that starvation is a condition thrust upon us, and when by choice we thrust that condition on ourselves, mm-hmm. it's called fasting, which you also mentioned was a paradoxical feat, right? both ensconcing us in physical existence and yet transcending it to a greater spiritual awareness. Well, that brings us to some of the background and history of fasting um, and, and history that's ongoing. And that's of course, Mm -hmm. fasting used by different religious practices um, Mm -hmm. for whatever their purposes. And, can you talk a little bit about that, about give us sort of like a crash course in the background of, of the history of, of fasting? Sure. So, you know, we talk about the history of fasting. There's really 
I would say, history. So there's fasting for religious regions, and, and we see that in many of the world's religions. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Christianity, we think of Lent. Uh, traditionally, it was a time when people wouldn't eat. Of course, the meaning of that changes. Um, Yom Kippur just recently is an example of a day of atonement where some folks fast for 25 hours or so. Um, the indigenous peoples of North America fasted to bring luck when planting corn, hunting deer, and building homes. And so we see we see fasting there. Um, and so there are many examples of fasting uh, throughout the world for religious reasons. But then there's also fasting for health. Um, and the, the earliest mention and serious consideration of fasting for health we can see in the Vedic texts of India uh, that were compiled between 1500 and 800 BC. And this is where uh, scholars were really looking to see how does this practice rid the body of toxins? Um, you know, they believed in this kind of humoral theory so that we're governed by humors and they thought that fasting ignited the digestive flame and moved things along. Uh, and you knew that you were fasting well, that you're doing properly when you would belch and feel energetic and sweat and have a keen appetite eventually. So that's really kind of the first place in these Vedic texts that we see a real concern with fasting. In the West, um, you know, the Greeks, Romans, they they did advocate fasting for certain illnesses. They were always very keen on moderation. So you shouldn't, you know, fast to extreme. Some of them actively disliked it. And we really don't see a, a, a huge interest in fasting for health until about the 16th century. And that's when we see humanist and architect Alvizi Cunaro um, decide to take it up and write about it. And he writes about it at length. And basically, he tells us that he led a quite debauched life, eating and drinking too much. He said he had gained too much weight. And at the age of 40 or so, he felt quite old. And so he decided then to just subsist essentially on qualified wine, which is wine watered down, and sometimes just an egg, and essentially consuming under 500 calories a day. And he said this rid him of all his maladies. And so this is really kind of the first time we start to see fasting used as a way to acquire great good health and people writing about it. Mm. Um, Well, in that, you know, it's amazing because it wasn't even until much later, which, you know, we can talk about um, in a minute, that we even knew that much about the digestive system and mm-hmm. medicine. I mean, and and yet these, you know, this withholding food was, you know, was seen as a as a health benefit. Um, but back to the um, antiquity and religious practices, uh, the, you know, some of the purposes of this. Can you go through? Can you talk about some of the religions and and the and some of the purposes? We well, atonement. You said atonement for Yom Kippur um, in the Jewish religion. Uh, I mean, just I, in general, or if you made you know a closer study. Sure. For instance, fasting is a way that people felt they could grow closer to God or the gods. Uh, in Hinduism, uh, people might fast on a particular day of the week associated with a particular god. So uh, folks might fast on Thursday to honor Vishnu. Um, we see this in ancient Egypt as well. Priests would fast before entering their temples and performing certain rites. Um, pharaohs would fast before making decisions. So it was a way to achieve a certain clarity. It was also a way of cultivating self-discipline. And we see this in Islam with Ramadan, which is a period of intermittent fasting, where 
people do not eat from dawn to dusk. And, and not only was it a way of kind of, um, you know, offering this kind of sacrifice, you're not eating, but it's a way of cultivating discipline as well. So there are many reasons why people following various religions decide to fast. Huh. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that, um, and people mention, and you've written about it also that, uh, they find this, you know, folk, greater focus, you know, when they've mm-hmm. been fasting, um, and, you know, do you say clarity, um, so you, I guess you also then feel more spiritual. Yes. And I will say that the Christ, early Christian monks in the second and third centuries, they would fast to mortify the flesh. So they had no interest in health. In fact, they wanted to deny the body. So you do see some of these monks just eating raw lentils and, and herbs soaked in water for years at a time, uh, destroying their ability to digest any other kind of food. But they wanted to do that because they felt that the flesh was inherently sinful. Hmm. That's, that's, that's interesting because then, as I say, we didn't really start to, we, as the, I guess, Western medicine didn't really even study, uh, digestion and the digestive system or nutrition even until really until the, um, late 18th, early 19th century. Mm-hmm. That, yes, that's correct. That we really don't see these kind of robust studies. We see people becoming curious. For instance, uh, in the second century AD, Roman Greek physician Galen would dissect gladiators, and he would notice that there would be this half-digested food in their stomachs. And they began to kind of surmise, well, you know, maybe food is the body's way of warming and repairing itself. Um, but they didn't really kind of have uh, quantitative ways of studying this until about the 16th century, where we see Swiss physician uh, Paracelsus decide that we need to experiment and observe so that we can better understand the needs of the human body. And once this idea kind of caught fire, you see all sorts of interesting experiments. There was a gentleman by the name of Santorio Santorio, Mm -hmm. and he had a weighing chair, and he would sit in this chair and he would eat and then he'd see what his weight was. And then when he, you know, defecated, he would weigh that and he found that it weighed less. And so he was wondering, well, what happened to that missing weight? Um, And so this is the beginning of this kind of quantitative research uh, that then really takes off in the 18th and 19th centuries. Mm Yeah, interesting. I found that very fascinating. <laughs> and in fact, there, you know, there have been, and you go through so many different diets over the ages, which, you know, that sometimes are akin to fasting. But, mm-hmm. um, it, and I think I've partaken in many of them that you mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that um, weighing, there was somebody who did that recently, a book. Oh, this book about you know very prescriptive eating and and you know prescriptive uh, fasting and and then weighing yourself and you know weighing your your feces as you say and, and making sure you're not eating too much and yeah uh, uh, it's interesting yeah, very, very interesting um, but one thing that I think is um, is clear to me now that you really approached. So you you approached this book through um, body, basically the desire to control your weight, mm-hmm. 
I mean, your your own fasting, not the book, but you approached your own fasting as a means to for control. Yes, it, I thought uh, for initially it was a bit of weight loss, but then it was for health reasons. I thought, could I have more energy? Um, could I just effortlessly control my weight through fasting? Um, as I started writing this book uh, and doing more research into fasting, I discovered that really when one does decide to fast, it should be for health reasons, um, that there are dangers when you decide just to fast for weight loss, because mm -hmm. of course it can be very effective. And indeed, when I was doing uh, research on the science of fasting and how we came to understand nutrition, it, it there are many sorrowful accounts of, fa of fasting and starvation, and many of our scientific discoveries came from the starvation that happened during the Second World War um, and the First World War. And, and so I think that one does have to be very careful. And if one does undertake a fasting diet, it should be for those health reasons. And science is discovering those are a legion now. Yeah. Well, it, even uh, prior to that time, and particularly with women, mm -hmm. there's a history of, of unhealthy fasting. Mm -hmm. um, was it Holy Feast, Holy Fast? But um, was a uh, an interesting. Yes, yes. Back, yeah. Um, and, you know, without getting into uh, mental health <laughs> too much, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of it, you know, one says, well, you know, I would do this, I'm doing this for religious reasons. Um, mm -hmm. These young women, primarily young, mm -hmm. you know, also I think there were some problems with, uh, you know, sexual development, with the um, maturity of their bodies. And if they didn't eat, that wouldn't happen. So, mm -hmm. you know, and then as we all know, you know, with this voluntary, well, fasting, then it becomes an illness, anorexia, mm -hmm. bulimia, you know, uh, the different, which affect both men and women. And it's something, yes, to have to be, you know, very concerned about and, and not to promote fasting unless you're the intermittent fasting, I think is a very interesting topic. And I think some of these new practices that are happening, um, today, uh, to control overeating, you know, overindulging and, that's that's been something that's been happening. Heaven knows we have accounts from Roman times of people, as you mentioned, the one early account of the Indian uh, mm -hmm. uh, who was just eating too much. Was that Pavo Erola? No, somebody uh, else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that I mean that that is absolutely true. You know, when we get into the 19th century, when you see people having, certain people, I should say, the middle and upper middle class, having so much to eat. Um, there is a physician by the name of Edward Hooker Dewey who came up with a no breakfast plan. And so we think, oh, this idea of intermittent fasting or not eating breakfast is new. But oh, actually, they, they developed it in the 19th century. Actually, his book came out in 1900. So um, but before that, he had come up with a breakfast plan, especially to address that problem of having too much. He described his daily breakfast as being comprised of meat, of eggs, of uh, starches. And he noticed that Europeans, he heard tell that Europeans begin their breakfast with just a, a coffee and a small roll. So he thought, well, maybe I'll try that. And it, it 
his health improved and he wrote this book and, and others followed suit and found their health improved. So yes, it's, it's definitely a response to, to having too much uh, among cer- certain people. Yeah. A, a term that I was not uh, familiar with that, but I mean, it made all the sense, but that you use in your writing is obesogenic, an mm-hmm. obesogenic environment. Can you explain that? Sure. So the obesogenic environment is essentially an environment that promotes overeating. So we may think that we are making our choices ourselves, but in fact, it's almost akin to hypnosis that everything from the advertisements that we encounter to the work that we do on computers to uh, engaging in television watching, that they incite this desire to eat. And the products are there to eat. And so we end up eating too much sometimes, and it's really very difficult to control because th- we're in this environment that tells us this is the way we should be consuming. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, Madison Avenue, boy, we can all <laughs> recite those <laughs> those yeah. commercials, right? Yeah. Um, breakfast cereal in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that leads me into some other thoughts about this and fasting and 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 new diet practices, which um, I want to talk about when we come back after a short break. So stay with us. We'll just take a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Christine Baumgart-Huber, and we're talking about fasting, the history of fasting, the fascination with fasting, uh, the reasons for fasting. You know, there are so many strange, uh, we were talking about health, you know, reasons that people would fast, but there were, you know, there was there were very strange reasons. I mean, we knew we, as a society, uh, people knew so little about the body and about medicine, and they were just learning. They knew they really didn't know anything about vitamins, nutrition. You know the difference between carbs and proteins, and and but they would so they would prescribe these fasts. You know, and people felt good for a little while, a couple of days, and then they started to feel really sick. <laughs> so it's been a it's been an evolution. What can we say? Uh, but we were talking about the our society in being, you know, blasted so much with, you know, overeating. Um, so then I kind of returned to the religious reasons, the religious practices of fasting. And for those uh, people of faith that really uh, practice fasting in a more regular uh, fashion, 
how do you think, and I had a, a colleague um, ask me about this, knowing that I was going to talk to you, but um, that do you, how do you think the people of faith feel about this fad of fasting today, all these different, the intermittent fasting and the, you know, and the uh, fast for fast for two days and feast for three and things like that. Have you, did you, do you get any insight when you were doing your research onto that? Um, well, I think that, that when one does fast, you should be aware of the rich tradition that it's not just about health, but it's also becoming more mindful. Um, and I think that it's important to remember that to respect um, those who do fast for religious purposes, uh, that it's not just a fad diet, but it is a tradition that has basically been with us since the dawn of human history. And that is something that we should keep in mind. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, and there are then there are these you know, cases of, you know, celebrity fasting, if you will, or, you know, mm-hmm. but then, you know, protests, starvation protests, that's different from, from just willing fasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was interested to find out in all of this that the body can actually go up to about, maybe not all bodies, but, you know, the about 80 days without food. That's right. So, uh, if you burn about 1,800 calories a day, you can survive about 80 days without food, depending on your original weight. Um, and we see this in the hunger artists of the late 19th century. Uh, Kafka's story about the hunger artists was not just uh, fiction, but there were these people who, for the entertainment of others, would fast from between 40, 60 days and, and upward. And uh, it was a great spectacle at the time. Uh, so yes, people can fast for quite a long time, though it is very dangerous when you conduct a fast of that length. Yeah, I mean, that's a strange entertainment, <laughs> to say the least. Right? Uh, <laughs> well, but I, there were all you know, so many different strange medical practices too. I mean, you know, hey, look, we had doctors doing bleeding and, you know, on patients, see, mm-hmm. you know, get rid of all kinds of illnesses, right? Yeah. And it's actually very interesting that you mentioned that because fasting was actually proposed as an alternative to that type of medicine, which was called heroic medicine. So at the time, People saw that this heroic medicine was saying, yes, if you want to get better, we're going to have to bleed you. You're going to have to take this emetic and purgative. Uh, but, but people were saying, no, if we just leave the body alone, if we just let it heal itself, it will heal itself. And it gave birth to a whole school of thought and what became known in the United States as the natural cure movement and fasting was front and center uh, as far as um, prescriptions were concerned. Yeah, and then with, uh, that we see the you know the uh, onset of naturopathic and allopathic, which have a mm-hmm. longer background in history, but uh, all linked to to non you know Western science methods. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk. Let's so let's go to these new intermittent fasting practices and and just fasting you know, regularly per se. I mean, I cannot believe that, you know, the internet's just strewn with, you know, buy this app and I'll, we'll help you fast. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, 
the intermittent fasting, you you yourself uh, tried that and you practice it, right? Yes, that's correct. And I have to say, I you know, obviously people have, sometimes you do it without even realizing it. And then you realize, oh, gee, I guess I for, totally forgot to eat. I'm, you know, I, I'm really not thinking about food. I'm not that hungry. Um, and I have a lot of energy. And then, but maybe I should eat something finally. So then after, I mean, I, I know this, you know, from personal experience. And after about eight hours, I realized, oh, you know, maybe I should have a little something to eat. And then, and that's fine. And then go back to the next day. Um, what, is there any, any science to back up some of this intermittent fasting or the type of, or, you know, how it should be done? Absolutely. So recent academic articles have shown that intermittent fasting can be very effective, especially if you choose to skip dinner. And this has to do with our circadian rhythms. So the body, like uh, the human body, like many other organisms, begins to become quiescent to slow down as we approach nightfall. And this is a time when it is clearing itself of toxins, repairing itself. And, and when you eat a big meal at night, you're adding an extra burden. And so if you skip dinner, then the body is better able to do this repair work that it does uh, during this period of quiet. Um, that's not to say that if you choose instead to skip breakfast, there are no benefits. There still are benefits. Studies have shown that you can still lose weight, that you still gain the health benefits of more energy, uh, better uptake of glucose, um, and things of that nature. But the ideal is to skip dinner. Yeah, it's interesting because you know people always talk about the Mediterranean diet. When you look at the Mediterranean populations being some of the earliest populations indeed. And their main meal was a large meal in the middle of the day. And still to this day uh, persists that way, not in general because of our the working ethic and environment, but uh, but eating the, the main meal in the middle of the day and then maybe in the evening just having a little, you know, a little sandwich, a little toast, a little something, you know, not, not a big meal. And that certainly makes sense. And uh, they talk about, you know, the, a lot of talk about the blue zones and about Mediterranean diets. And, and, and I think if they just look at that method of eating, it, it makes a lot of sense to not burden the, the body with food at the end of the day. Absolutely. And I would say uh, if you don't want to give up dinner, because dinner is a very important event. It's uh, I. I'm writing a book right now on dining and dinner has been hard won. The fact that mm -hmm. many people can eat together with family and friends hasn't always been the case throughout history. And so it's something that we shouldn't give up um, lightly or willingly. Uh, you can certainly do it if it fits your lifestyle, but definitely if, if it's an important event for you, don't do that, but rather have that smaller meal perhaps in the evening where you still gather together, but you're not, eating this gut-busting meal, perhaps save that for lunch. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's difficult when you have a family. Obviously, it's the time when, as you said, everyone comes together. And for many, it's the only time that they really have, you know, something substantial as opposed to grabbing a bite at their desk or on the run. And I think we have, we as a society have changed our, our habits so dramatically um, from back in the pre <laughs> 
I could say pre-electronic days, I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, but that we, you know, we're always in a hurry, always in a hurry, never take the time to sit down and actually have meals. Someone once said, if you sit down, if you sit down when you eat, then the food is more meaningful. Well, then there's the whole mindful eating thing, and you made uh, an allusion to that earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to, you know, and then they grab a little something. So dinner, as you said, dinner is an, is an important meal. And maybe it doesn't have to be all about so much food, but it's a, you know, a coming together. But about fasting in, you know, like there are some people who they have these calendars where they, they, I, I just happened upon someone's personal calendar one time and they had, you know, like four or five days of a month blocked off where they, they were fast days and they just weren't going. And it wasn't religious. It was, you know, it was pure uh, body control. And they would be like maybe four or five days a month where they would not eat at all. And I was surprised by that. Yes, that is a that's one variety of fasting diet that's popular now. Um, and, and there's many. There is the 16-8 intermittent fasting where you fast for 16 hours. Um, there's something called a snake diet where you just drink this kind of saline solution to keep hunger at bay. And there's one where you just eat at night and you fast by day. Um, there's spontaneous meal skipping where if you're just not hungry, you don't eat. And I would say before trying any of these, of course, you should consult with your physician because Mm -hmm. depending on any pre-existing conditions, these might not be best for you. But there are many different types of fasts, which in a way is great because you can probably, if you're interested in it, find one that suits your lifestyle. Yeah, Yeah, certainly I'm not, I'm I'm not advocating any by, you know, talking about it. I'm not advocating uh, fasting by any means and, you know whatever works for some people. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, and I will say with my, for myself, if I come home and I'm really hungry, I'll eat. So it's not, it's not something that I say I have to stick to this no matter what. If, if I'm hungry, I'll eat, I'll eat a light meal. Um, and if I'm out with friends and they want to have dinner together, then I'll eat that. So I, I definitely, it's something that I do when I, I feel like it, but it's, I'm not going to uh, put my life on hold or make myself overly uncomfortable um, by trying to adhere to unrealistic expectation about intermittent fasting. Right. I mean, it's been, you know, it's something that has been done by humans throughout the ages uh, and, <clears throat> and not necessarily for religious purposes, but yes, definitely widespread in religious practices. And that's, and that's always breaking the fast. The fast is always broken and eaten. It's not, you know, withholding food for long periods of time. So it's, it's interesting that we should, I guess, always grasping on a way to, to control our bodies. And, and uh, clearly in this day and age, there's too, as you said, too much food available, too much uh, advertising and, and awareness of food. And uh, we are, you know, always looking at the, the next greatest restaurant. And it's a wonder and it's a wonderful activity. It's a fun social activity at uh, eating together and, and, and yet not to excess. And too many times that's what happens. It's just eating to excess. And the numbers of diets that have come throughout 
the years. I mean, I, you know, and they had fancy names to them, eat only meat and, and eat, you know, no carbs. And well, that kind of brings me to another thing about the fasting too does this. And that's people now have, you know, keyed on to this, uh, uh, metabolic uh, um, occurrence, and that's when you fast or or don't have you know any carb, any carbohydrates, any simple carbs, you enter the state of ketosis, and that is something that um, people so they're really playing heavy on this on the whole keto diet thing. Well, you know, I don't know. What's your take on that? <laughs> Uh, when when you do fast for a period of time, yes, your body will enter a state of ketosis, and, mm-hmm. and that's because it, it it doesn't have any more glucose to eat, and rather will turn to eating your fat stores, right. um, which is and, an ideal solution for weight loss. Yeah, <laughs> yes, and it also add a benefit that in a state of ketosis you don't feel hungry. Um, now, intermittent fasting, you don't really enter into that state. Um, but, you know, for those who fast a bit longer or consume a low-carb diet, it can help because it keeps hunger at bay. Now, of course, there are certain side effects that you should be aware of. But, um, yeah, I think it, yeah, it depends on the individual if that's, if that's a state you want to enter. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> in this day and age where we still have so many people suffering from acute hunger and, and food insecurity, I mean, I, we should feel... Um, very spoiled and very privileged that we can be consumed with fasting and voluntarily withholding food. It's just, it's, you know, the, the irony of, of, of that is, you know, not lost for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I, and in my book, I do discuss how the poor don't, they don't fast willingly. Right. And I think that if you do have the privilege to be able to fast, to perhaps think of it as a time when you aren't consuming and to, to think about, say, uh, overconsumption in general in our lives. Mm-hmm. And that it can be a time that that time you gain back by not, say, eating dinner or breakfast is perhaps you can cultivate a, a new hobby that brings you closer to the things that make life meaningful. So I think if you can look at it as a mindfulness practice, as well as, as a, you know, something that supplements your, your eating habits, um, then you can make fasting more meaningful if you're not already doing it for religious reasons. Right. Right. Certainly giving the body a chance to rest, the digestive system a chance to rest. Um, it's really interesting. I, I have to say I was, I mean, I was really interesting even, you know, learning about, uh, one section of your book where you're learning about nature and, and, you know, talking about the biology and, and, and nature of different species who fast so that their progeny can survive and exist and be born. And I mean, it's just, and they, they do it voluntarily. I mean, I guess it's just sort of innate in their systems. So many different, uh, fasting examples that are given. And it's a, it's a very, Curious topic, and it's a very interesting book, and you do a very nice job about uh, covering covering the basis. And again, the book is called Why Fast? The Pros and Cons of Restrictive Eating. And the author is my guest, Christine Baumgart-Huber. And Christine, thank you so much for joining me today. And I look forward to reading about 
the next book too, Dining. That's that'll be interesting. <laughs> well, thank you, Linda. I anticipate an, that to be a very long book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, very long. And and I thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right. And thank you for joining me. Again, this has been a taste of the past. And I thank my engineer, Liam Werner, for helping get this on the air. And remember, this is brought to you by heritageradionetwork.org. And be sure to visit the website, heritageradionetwork.org, and consider becoming a member, or at least just subscribe to this show if you want to hear more of this show. We thank you very much for your help. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.